Welcome back, everybody. This is lecture 13, and we are going to talk about intrinsic and innate defenses. This is the first of two sessions where we explore how the host deals with an infectious disease. And here is my view of the host defensive system. In my view, it consists of a series of walls and they're they're put there to stop viruses from getting past them. The first wall comprises anatomical and chemical barriers, and these are always around. They're continuously present: mucus, saliva, stomach acid, tears, your skin, right, scabs, and defensins. Defensins are proteins on your skin that are produced by your microbiome. And those defensins are antiviral. It's amazing. That stops a lot of viruses, but some get past it. And then they encounter the intrinsic defenses, which are always there. And they include interferons, which we'll talk about today, autophagy, apoptosis, microRNAs, and CRISPR. We'll talk about a few of these today. And if some viruses get past them, we will be encountering innate immunity, which we'll also talk about today. And this is not always on, but it can be turned on in minutes or hours after a virus is encountered and sensed. And how does the system do that? We'll learn today. And then, you know, I think most infections are dealt with by these three defenses. Uh, but a few viruses do get through. And in that case... We have to have acquired immunity, which takes a long time to get going, you know, hours to days. And that's why we have these others to kind of keep viruses at bay until we can get acquired immunity. And that, of course, involves T cells and B cells. And we will talk about acquired immunity next time, which will be um, uh, one, uh, almost two weeks from today, right after spring break. Uh, intrinsic defenses are always present in the host cell. You could view them as, you know, ready to go, but not quite gone yet. Once the virus gets in, they go, but very quickly. These include apoptosis, programmed cell death, autophagy cells eating themselves, RNA silencing, and some antiviral proteins. And we'll talk, we'll give you some examples of that today. In contrast, the innate immune system is induced by infection. It's, it's uh, warming up is required right? So it's a little different from intrinsic. And then the adaptive is totally different because not only it takes a long time, and the reason it does take a long time is because it's tailored to the pathogen. And we'll see how that works in the next lecture. Today, we'll, we'll talk about intrinsic and innate. So first, uh, let's talk about some examples of intrinsic defenses. And the first is RNA interference. And this involves when a virus infects a cell, typically an RNA virus, but um, here this RNA virus has put RNA into the cell, double-stranded RNA. It could be the genome is double-stranded RNA, or it could be that the double-stranded RNA is an, as a reproductive intermediate. In either case, the cell takes that RNA. There's an there's a enzyme in the cell called Dicer. Wonderful name, right? You know exactly what it does. It chops up the RNA into bits. It dices it, and uh, 
It chops it into very specific lengths, about 21 nucleotides long, uh, double-stranded here, and then one strand is removed, and it is put into a complex called the... Um, uh, R, the every time I, I see this, I forget it. RNA-induced silencing complex risk. And that includes uh, proteins that recognize the RNA and another protein called Argonaut, which is going to bring this to a target. So Argonaut is a great name too, right? And it will bring the, the small RNA, which is now called an siRNA, to a target. And it brings it there by base pairing. So this small interfering RNA was derived from the viral genome. And so as the genome reproduces, it will find its complement in the genome, base pair with it, and then Argonaut will chop up the viral RNA. So that's an ancient defense, probably from many, many years ago, just after the RNA world, I guess. We, we know it is present in plant and invertebrate cells. It's antiviral for sure in those cells. You know, plants don't have antibodies, right? So what do they have? They have RNA-based defenses. And mammals, it's there. We certainly have the machinery. Right? We have Dicer. We have Argonaut. We can utilize it. We can put small interfering RNAs into cells to knock down gene expression. We're not sure if it's actually antiviral. There's a little bit of controversy over that in the field. So it may be a remnant. It may be used for gene modifying gene expression. We're not sure if it's antiviral. It seems to be present in germ cells, which would make sense because there's not going to be any antibody defenses there, right? They're just single cells. So that would make sense. But even then, people are not sure about it. But it's certainly in a mature animal. There's no evidence that it's antiviral. But anyway, it's an example of an intrinsic defense, right? It's always there. Now... And every slide I show you, I'm going to have this word countermeasure. What that means is that every virus encodes a countermeasure for these things. Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. And there are certainly many countermeasures for uh, RNA silencing, including proteins, for example, that bind these small RNAs and prevent them from becoming part of the risk, the RNA-induced silencing complex. So here's another example. This is a set of proteins that are part of the intrinsic defenses in our cells. And I want to illustrate this with uh, HIV-1 as an example. And this, this, this family of proteins are called ApoBex, which stands for apolipoprotein B mRNA editing catalytic polypeptide. Don't worry about the names. It just was named this years ago before we knew that it could do what I'm going to tell you today. And there are a lot of different ApoBex proteins. But what they do for an HIV-infected cell here is uh, ApoBec in this picture here, uh, A3G or F. So that's ApoBec3GF, two different versions of the protein. Normally, this protein would get incorporated into the HIV particle and would, would cause inhibition of replication by a mechanism I'm going to tell you about in a moment. But the HIV-infected uh, cell contains a protein called VIF, V-I-F, and what VIF does, it binds the ApoBec and it binds this protein complex, which basically ubiquinates ApoBecs. That's what they'll use are. It adds ubiquitin to the ApoBec. Those are sh short proteins, which then are marks for sending the protein to the proteasome to be degraded, the garbage disposal of the cell, the proteasome. So they're degraded and 
And so in an HIV-infected cell, there's no ApoBec around to get incorporated into virus particles. So the virus particles that are made are infectious. Now, you can remove the VIF gene from the HIV genome. And so now you can make viruses and infect cells which now do not have VIF. So they're VIF minus, but the cells do have ApoBecs. And now the ApoBec is going to get incorporated into the particle because there's no... Um, there's no VIF to get it degraded, right? And so these particles are now going to infect the new cell, and it's got, remember, ApoBec in it. ApoBecs are cytidine deaminases. They take an amino group off of cytidine, and that changes the base. So here we have RNA in the particle being reverse transcribed, right? So we have minus strand DNA. The ApoBec was going to change that C to a U. That's what deamination does. And now when you make the next strand, well, it's going to be an A that's going to be made it's because it's seeing a U, not a C. So you get, normally you would have a G, but now you're going to have an A, so you have G to A mutations. And this happens pretty much wherever there's a C. So this the genome is mutated out of infectivity, essentially. And that's what ApoBec does. It mutates uh, the genome until so it's no longer infectious, and it's antiviral, right? It's brilliant. I think it's wonderful. But <laughs> the virus is more brilliant, if that's possible, because it has VIF, which gets rid of ApoBec. That's it. Now, ApoBec genes, we have a bunch of them in our genome. Here on the right is a picture. VIF is a viral protein, yes. It's an ant, it's a antagonist of immune defense. Here are all the um, ApoBec genes in chimps and humans. You, know, you have a whole bunch. So these have expanded over evolutionary time. They have duplicated and moved to other parts of the genome, which tells us that there's selection for them. They must be important. You know, so over the many years of evolution, we have had viral insults, and this is selected for the amplification of this gene family. Guess what mammal has the most apobec genes? Bats. Look at that. Look at them all. And why? Because bats have a lot of viruses in them. And they must have had them over many, many years of their evolution because they keep making more and more apobecs to deal with these viruses. So that's pretty cool. All right, that's an example of a intrinsic defense. We have another one, which is very cool. Epigenetic silencing is for DNA viruses, or at least viruses where DNA goes in the nucleus. Uh, viral DNA comes in, and the cell is very unhappy with that. It does not want to have foreign DNA in the nucleus, and so it silences it. It wraps up the chromatin. chromatin it compacts the chromatin, right? And we've talked a little bit about how that can happen for example, histone deacetylases, they take off acetylated histones or the acetyl groups from the histones. So the presence of the acetyl makes the chromatin open and, and transcriptionally active. If you take off the acetyl group, it compacts the chromatin. There are other ways you can compact it as well. And that's what we call epigenetic silencing. Foreign DNA comes in, actually in the nucleus, which are shown here. These are this is a stain of an infected cell, and it's stained with DAPI to show you the nuclear part. And you see all these green areas are they called PML bodies. That's 
where the, the DNA would be put and it would be silenced. And there are a number of proteins associated with these. However, viruses, viral genomes encode countermeasures. Of course, they have to. Otherwise, they would be taken out of existence. <clears throat> so there's very strong selection for such countermeasures. And here are just a couple of examples. For example, the human cytomegalovirus genome encodes a protein called PP71 that degrades a cell protein called DAX, which is needed for, for histone deacetylation. You take out DAX, and you, your chromatin remains open and transcriptionally active. Uh, another uh, herpes virus, Epstein-Barr, and an adenovirus protein uh, affect the localization of these PML bodies so they don't work as well. Okay, so those are two examples of proteins that antagonize this epigenetic silencing. But the one I really like is retroviral uh, DNA, right? This is just the ultimate simplicity. When retroviral DNA comes into the nucleus, right? It's been made in the cytoplasm in the particle, goes in the nucleus. As, as soon as it's there in the nucleus, it starts to get compacted and silenced. And that, that, but as soon as it integrates, it's no longer silenced because the cell doesn't silence its own genome. It's its own genome. And that's one of the reasons for integration to, to remain transcriptionally active. So you don't have to encode anything you just integrate your DNA. Now, of course, it encodes an integrase, which gets it integrated. So was it, that is kind of an indirect way of avoiding silencing. I really like that. I think that's brilliant. So you could be silenced. The retroviral DNA could be silenced before it integrates. But then as soon as it integrates, becomes uh, acetylated and, and active again. Another intrinsic defense is apoptosis, programmed cell death, right? When a, when a cell encounters stress, it undergoes uh, programmed cell death, which is triggered by certain uh, ligand receptor interactions. We'll see in a moment. And so the cell, the, the nucleus begins to break up and the cell sheds apoptotic bodies. Pieces of the cell go away, come off from the main cell body. And eventually that cell dies. There are many changes associated with apoptosis, but they can be triggered by virus infection. Here's an example of a cell undergoing apoptosis. You know, it's, it's blebbing off these apoptotic bodies. Now, those, those are parts of the dead cell, and they can contain viral proteins and nucleic acids. So part of the uh, innate response is sentinel cells, including macrophages and dendritic cells and others we'll talk about. They patrol your body looking for apoptosis. They actually will pick up these apoptotic bodies, and they will say, is this foreign? Does it have foreign proteins or RNA? And if it does, then they will ask for help and uh, probably go into a lymph node and chat with a T cell and say, we should probably do something about this. Talk about that in a bit. So apoptosis is a really key part of the early immune response for sampling. And there are, of course, viral antagonists of apoptosis. Now, some viruses stimulate apoptosis it helps to get their particles out of the cell. And apoptosis can be triggered in a few ways. Um, there are extrinsic and intrinsic mechanisms. We, we don't need to know that. But here are three uh, plasma membrane uh, receptors. Uh, and the binding of their ligands triggers apoptosis. So we have fast receptor and fast ligand trail and its receptor and tumor necrosis factor and its receptor. So the binding of these ligands to these uh, 
cell surface receptors will trigger apoptosis. And then uh, the ligand interaction starts a signaling cascade leading to production of caspases, uh, which then trigger apoptosis. The release of cytochrome from mitochondria also triggers apoptosis. Mitochondria are very important, as you know. And if they get damaged, the cell wants to know. And if this mitochondria is damaged in any way by stress, viral infection, cytochrome C leaks out, and that's a trigger for apoptosis. Probably evolved a long time ago to um, ensure that cells don't have damaged mitochondria. And now it's used for defense against viruses. So uh, many, many viruses trigger apoptosis, as I said, because it may help virus particles leave the cell. So here are all these viruses listed here. They actually uh, trigger apoptosis at FAS receptor. And then down here is another few viruses that can trigger apoptosis at this step. But what we're interested in are the inhibitors. So here are the red bars, viral genomes encode proteins that antagonize, you know, this particular receptor and this caspase conversion. So for, for many viruses, encode inhibitors so that the cells live long enough to pr produce virus particles. Someone wants to know, where does ferroptosis, oxytosis come into play? How does apoptosis hand off to other kinds of cell death? I'm not sure it hands off, but there are other kinds of cell death that are certainly triggered. I'm not telling you about them all. Like necroptosis is a distinct type of cell death. can also be triggered by infection, can also uh, be inhibited by viral inhibitors. Another ancient defense is, or intrinsic defense, this one happens to be an ancient one, is CRISPR. You know, CRISPR is in the news because it lets us do gene editing, but that's not what it was made for. It's just that a few clever people changed it to do gene editing, which is cool. You know, we repurpose things all the time, but it was not, it did not appear on Earth so that we could do gene editing. It appeared a long time ago so that bacteria and archaea could fight off viruses and plasmids, anything that invaded them. Clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats first discovered in bacteria, you know, years ago and, you know, repeats of DNA. What are these DNA repeats doing here? Well, they're remnants of ancient infections, actually. And of course, the person who discovered that did not get the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize was given for repurposing CRISPR to do gene editing. And the, the people who discovered it have been left out, unfortunately. So what happens here? 90% of archaea and 50% of bacteria have CRISPR defenses. A phage infects a bacteria. Most of the time the bacteria dies, but some may live for whatever reason, and pieces of the phage DNA are integrated into the host DNA and kept. And this, these can add up over time, and they're passed on to uh, the, the, the dividing cells, of course, the daughter cells. And they're constantly transcribed, actually, into small CRISPR RNAs. So if, if this DNA, if this phage comes back again one day, it puts its genome in the cell. Uh, these CRISPR RNAs, together with Cas, CRISPR-associated nucleases, are going to chew up the incoming phage DNA. Same thing with plasmids, which can invade bacteria, right? So there's a whole record of previous infections. And so you can sometimes match a phage 
with its host by looking at the CRISPR sequences in the genome, see if they match up. Very clever. So if you do microbiome sequencing or virome sequencing, you can match up the virus with the host if you have both CRISPRs. If you have the CRISPR sequences of the host, then you can match it up with the viral sequences. Those are some examples of intrinsic defenses. First question. Intrinsic defenses are always present. Which of the following are included? Antibodies, T-cells, epigenetic silencing, skin, and mucus. Let's see what we did. Most of you got epigenetic silencing, which is correct. Intrinsic. Now, antibodies are adaptive. That's, that's not even this lecture. That's like after spring break. Skin and mucus are, are not, they're the physical and chemical defenses before intrinsic. I want to distinguish between those and intrinsic, you know, which have to be turned on, but they get turned on really quickly. All right, innate immune defenses. This is our second topic for today. So we, we talked about anatomical and chemical barriers, a little bit about intrinsic, just to give you a flavor. There's a lot more to that, but we don't need to know every bit, right? We just need to understand the concept. Innate immunity is right here, our third wall. Activated within minutes to hours after infection. Minutes to hours. So it's not on all the time. It's got to warm up. It comprises cytokines, sentinel cells, We've already encountered one sentinel cell, uh, a macrophage, but there's also dendritic cells and NK cells, natural killer cells, and complement. So cytokines, sentinel cells, and complement. That is the innate immune system. And it again, it reacts quickly to a virus infection, but if it can't handle the infection, it interacts with the adaptive immune system to, to get that going. So the innate is a great trigger for the adaptive immune system. And that will kick in, you know, in days to weeks if it's needed. It may not be. As I said, the, the uh, innate immune system can clear many, many infections. All right, so first, how does the innate immune system recognize something foreign and not yourself? This was a puzzle for many years. And the clue came from Studies being done on Drosophila in the 1980s. Two investigators in Germany were, were studying genes in fruit flies that were important for development. Right? So this is like de rigueur to everybody. This is done all the time. But it was a time when we didn't know what genes controlled development. And they, were, they would make mutations in the flies and then look at them. And so the, the legend has it that... Uh, Nusslein Volhard was looking at the flies under a microscope, and she saw a really weird one. And she called um, Wieschaus over to look at it, and she said this in German, das war ja toll, and, you know, I don't see um, Wiebke here today, but she would tell me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, which I probably am, but it's okay. You can pronounce it at the next break. Uh, anyway, toll like cool or whatever, far out. And so this was, they called it the Toll Gene, T-O-L-L, -L, because of that. They got a Nobel Prize uh, for, for this whole approach in um, 1995. But um, so this Toll Gene initially identified because it 
played a role in establishing this dorsal ventral axis. But then, uh, years later, it was found to have a role in immunity of the fly to microbes. And finally, a year later, these genes encoding toll proteins were um, found in mammals. So, And that turned out to be the key for how the innate immune system identifies foreign substances in viruses and bacteria and fungi. Kind of a, you know, around the back. Yeah, but um, that's how things work, right? So toll-like receptors are now part of a big family of receptors called pattern recognition receptors, or PRRs. So all of these here are different ones. Here are the toll-like receptors. Uh, these are either at the plasma membrane or there are also some in endosomes. And they can recognize a lot of things like proteins and nucleic acids and sugars and say, this is foreign. It's not, shouldn't be here. And, and in fact, we call what they recognize PAMPs, pathogen-associated molecular patterns. But the TLRs are just one of many. There are C-type lectin receptors on the cell surface that um, recognize glycans from some fungi and bacteria. And, you know, it's the pattern of, yeah, LPS is one thing recognized by TLRs. That's why, as we'll see later, LPS is used as an adjuvant. Stimulate immune responses, okay, because it's in, it stimulates TLRs. So that should tell you something about the innate immune response. So we have nucleotide-binding oligomerization domain-like receptors, NLRs. These are cytoplasmic receptors that recognize a variety of PAMPs. And we have RIG-I-like receptors. These are cytoplasmic receptors of viral RNA. So four kind of components of different kinds of receptors. Flagellin is another one. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of things. Proteins, DNA, RNA. We'll see some of these now. So here are some um, examples of this recognition of PAMPs. So here are some toll-like receptors on the plasma membrane. Um, TLR2 can recognize cytomegalovirus, which is misspelled by the artist, and we didn't pick it up. And TLR4 can recognize glycoproteins of respiratory syncytial in, in a retrovirus. And then um, there are endosomal toll-like receptors, as you can see here. TLR3, 7, 8, and 9, which can recognize a variety of RNA motifs and, and uh, DNA motifs, CG. Why are they in the endosome? Yeah, a lot of viruses enter right through the endosome. And so that's a good place to sense uh, these molecules. Um, and what happens when these sense is they, they start signaling pathways, usually phosphorylation cascades, uh, that end up in sending uh, transcription factors into the nucleus. Transcription proteins like IRF3, NF-kappa B, IRF7, they go in and they turn on the synthesis of mRNAs encoding cytokines, which we will talk about including interferons, which get the antiviral response going. So you sense something foreign and then you start an antiviral response. But this is the basis for sensing a virus. Uh, and in fact, these RNA sensors you know, double-stranded RNA should not be in, a, in an uninfected cell. So that's why uh, it's considered to be foreign. Here on the right, we're looking in more detail at rig-eye-like 
cytosolic receptor. So on the left, they're toll-like receptors. On the right, rigi-like receptors. But the end result is the same. You turn on transcription of, of cytokines. But here we have uh, in the cytosol various RNAs. So these could be in the cytosol as well, right? The, the viruses that come in through the endosome, some of them put their RNA in the, in the cytosol. And for example, MDA5 is a sensor of long double-stranded RNA, which is never cellular. It's always viral. Rig I is a sensor of, of different kinds of, du of double and single-stranded RNA. So for example, um, double-stranded RNA with either five prime phosphates or short double-stranded RNA. Again, that's not a cellular product, so it's immediately detected as foreign. Then single-stranded RNA with five prime three phosphates. That is also never found in the cell. The, the five prime end would be capped and have one phosphate or two phosphates in the cell. So all of these are recognized as foreign because it's the kind of RNA that doesn't occur in an uninfected cell. And in all cases, when these ligands bind either RIG-I or MDA5, uh, then that turns on a signaling pathway. These two happen to work through a mitochondrion-associated protein, which then turns on phosphorylation of downstream uh, proteins, and, and those um, phosphorylate transcription factors, in particular IRF3 and 7, they go in the nucleus. NF-kappa B, the phosphorylation removes the inhibitor, of MS-kappa-B, which then goes in the nucleus, turns on the transcription of cytokine genes. So the, the outcome is similar. You get sensing of something that's foreign that should not be there, and then a phosphorylation cascade turns on transcription of cytokine genes. And you don't have to know any of this stuff in between. You just need to know that we have sensors for some kinds of foreign proteins in RNA, and that sensing turns on cytokine synthesis, right? You can also sense DNA. This is a pretty recently discovered pathway. This is a pathway for sensing DNA in the cytoplasm. Now, I never liked this idea because most DNA viruses put their DNA in the nucleus, right? In their endocytosed or either brought on microtubules to the nucleus. I didn't like this, but it certainly is there. And now it turns out that many viruses leak DNA as they move through the cytosol. So who knows they would be so sloppy, but DNA gets out and it shouldn't be there. There should be no DNA in the cytoplasm. And so the cell has a system for sensing that. And in fact, if the nucleus is damaged in some way and it leaks DNA, the cell will sense that and probably end up killing itself. So the DNA here is sensed by a protein called C-gas, cyclic. GMP AMP synthase. Okay, and this is uh, what it makes. So it binds double stranded DNA and takes ATP and GTP, makes a cyclic molecule out of it. Here's the AMP part, here's the GMP, here are the two sugars, and then it's a, it's a cyclic bond there. It's pretty cool, made by this. And that acts like a messenger, basically. It binds an ER protein called Sting. It has nothing to do with police, the band. Just it's actually stimulator of interferon, something or other. Uh, and then um, this binding of CGAMP makes Sting go to uh, the Golgi, and they, there it interacts with a kinase called TBK, which phosphorylates transcription factors that go in the nucleus and turn on uh, cytokine synthesis. Same, same thing as with the other sensors. 
except this is sensing DNA in the cytoplasm. There are also sensors for DNA in the nucleus, which makes perfect sense to me, right? Because that's where nuclear viruses go. And um, they are somehow sensed as different from cellular DNA and turns on the same set of reactions. Of course, there are virus proteins that antagonize all of these sensing and transduction systems. This has been a big area of study in many labs, and there just a few studies are shown on this slide. And again, I don't want you to know the details. I just want you to understand that there are viral proteins that can antagonize at multiple steps. For example, here's sensing of, um, of RNA and by the cytosolic helicases. And there are viral proteins that inhibit these reactions. Um, this is, Rigai actually requires ubiquitination for activity and this viral protein inhibits it. And the proteases of hepatitis C virus cleave the MAVs, which is needed for the signaling downstream. And the same thing with DNA viruses. They, gene products inhibit, you know, synthesis of uh, interaction of DNA with C-gas. Here, hepatitis B viruses inhibiting ubiquitination of sting, which is needed for its activation of kinases. Hepatitis C is interacting with sting. So at every step, there is a viral protein or multiple viral proteins that antagonize this. Why? Because um, the cytokines that would be produced would inhibit virus replication. We'll see how they do that in a, in a bit. Now, someone asks... Uh, these inhibitory viral proteins must be in the particle. No, they're actually not. They're it, they're made in infection. So the um, the cell gets a head start, can sense the infection and start to make cytokines. But then the viral proteins will be made, and uh, you know if they don't function in the first cell, they will most likely function in the second cell. It's a good question, though, because they don't have to work in that very first infecting cell. It's a race. It's an early race, really. It depends how much virus gets in and how, how much protein can be made to overwhelm the system. But they're definitely not in the particle. Uh, next question. Which of the following allow the innate immune system to distinguish microbes from self? Cytoplasmic helicases and TLRs. Antibodies, apoptosis, apobec, all of the above. All right, distinguishing microbes from self. Now, most of you got the right answer, but not many of you. Only 62% of you. And 62% of 31 is not a lot, I understand. But uh, cytoplasmic helicases and toll-like receptors are what allow the innate immune system to distinguish microbes from self. Antibodies are part of the adaptive immune system, right? So they're not part of the distinguishing, and uh, apoptosis, no one got, that's good, that's intrinsic, apobec is intrinsic, it's even earlier than innate, and it doesn't do any distinguishing. You know, it just gets packaged into virus particles, and not all of the above, okay? So that's key, key here, cytoplasmic helicases and toll-like receptors, they are part of this innate immune sensing mechanism. Question, does timing determine whether apoptosis serves the benefit of the host or the virus? Yes, I think so. However, if I told you, you know, it benefits benefits viruses with short reproduction cycles, you could find viruses like HIV, which have longer cycles that induce apoptosis. I think generally the viruses, like the DNA viruses with long 
reproduction cycles need to inhibit apoptosis. Otherwise, the cell will die before you know they, they make particles. It just takes a long time. And the RNA viruses that have shorter cycles tend to stimulate apoptosis. Like polio stimulates apoptosis, so it helps its particles to get out of the cell. Does DNA go into the cytoplasm when a cell lyses? Yeah, you know, it, so part one of the cytopathic effects is breakdown of the nuclear membrane. So, uh, but that's pretty latent in infection. So I'm not sure that that stimulating innate immunity is going to do much good. Uh, let's talk about some cytokines. Remember when a a cell senses uh, that it's been infected by one of these PAMP sensors, right? Pattern recognition receptors make cytokines. So what are these cytokines? Well, one of the a, a big one is interferons, really important one, which were discovered in 1957 by these two individuals. And what they found is that they could take chicken cells in culture and they could add heat inactivated influenza virus to them and then they wait a day or two and take the cell culture medium and put it on another cell and it would protect that cell against infection. So they said it interfered with infection of other cells, so they call it interferon, which I think is really a great word, interferon, right? It's kind of sci-fi-like. I love it. So interferons, we know, there are multiple interferons. They're proteins made by virus-infected cells. They're also made by uninfected cells, and how that happens, you'll see. Uh, they are made in response to virus infection, and the uninfected cells uh, make interferon because these are sentinel cells. They're picking up apoptotic bodies, right? And they are saying, hmm, there's something foreign here, and that turns on the synthesis of uh, cytokines via these pattern recognition receptors. So you don't have to be virus infected. So here we have a scenario. We have an epithelial sheet. Let's say it's a respiratory tract, and these are, well, these are not coronaviruses. It's got the wrong core there, nucleocapsid. This is supposed to be a retrovirus by morphology, but who knew what the artist was thinking? And anyway, these virus particles are infecting the epithelial cells. They are then sensed by these cells by some pattern recognition receptor, and the cell makes cytokines. The red dots are cytokines. And the cytokines get out of the cell. They're secreted, and you can see them here. And eventually, um, they will attract sentinel cells, actually, to come in here. Because now we have an infected cell or cells in this area. So sentinel cells. The sentinel cells, as you see, are always patrolling. They're always moving around. But uh, if a cell is making uh, cytokines, they're going to be attracted to it. And uh, then um, that cell could make more cytokines just by the virtue of it sensing these cytokines produced by the infected cell. And as we'll see in a bit, if this were an, a dendritic cell, a certain kind of sentinel, uh, the, the process of picking up these cytokines and also apoptotic bodies from these infected cells would cause it to become activated, mature, and then it goes into the lymph node to uh, have a conversation with T cells. So that's um, the overall scenario. But first, let's talk about interferons. There are three main types. We have type 1, 2, and 3. And the type 1 is uh, typically interferon alpha and beta. There's 13 different kinds of alpha and one kind of beta. 
Type 2 is interferon gamma, and type 3 interferon uh, lambda. Type, type 1 is pretty much produced by all cell kinds. Type 2 is mostly immune cells. And type 3, we think, actually uh, epithelial cell specific. These uh, bind distinct receptors on the plasma membrane. They're shown here. You know, IFNAR interferon alpha receptor. It's a heterodimer of R1 and 2. It binds interferon alpha. And in the same way, the interferon gamma receptor binds interferon gamma. And the lambda receptor binds lambda. They're all different. And the binding starts a signaling pathway, again, involving phosphorylation. These are protein kinases, JAK. Kinase is a kinase. Jack is just another kinase. And uh, tick is another kinase. And these get phosphorylated, they get activated, then they send signals downstream. But the key here is that these interferons are cytokines made by cells that sense that they're infected. The cells make cytokines, including interferons. And then the interferons get out of those cells and bind the receptors on the plasma membrane of a neighboring cell, very much shown here. And they induce signal transduction. So here's our scenario, virus infection, it's sensed. In this case, the RNA is being sensed by the cytoplasmic rig I or MDA5. Signaling pathway, transcription factors go in the nucleus. The cell makes cytokines. They're secreted. The cytokines are typically secreted proteins, which then bind to receptors on another. It could be the same cell, actually, but also on another cell. This is interferon lambda. It's binding, the interferon, it's binding to the interferon lambda receptor on another cell. That starts a signaling pathway me, mediated by STAT proteins. They get phosphorylated, they dimerize, they associate with another protein, they go in the nucleus, and they turn on the synthesis of what are called interferon-stimulated genes, or ISGs. And it's the ISGs that are actually antiviral. You can see this one is apparently trashing this capsid, right? And there are many ways that these ISGs work. Most of them, There are over a thousand of them, actually, and we don't know how most of them work. I'll give you some examples. You can see how neat they are. But uh, that's the scenario. So virus infection, uh, interferon produced rapidly within hours of infection, and then goes down because you can't make interferon all the time. Interferon is a nasty thing makes you feel badly, as you'll see in a moment. And then, as I told you, the interferon-stimulated genes, uh, over a 1,000, those are the ones with that encode proteins with antiviral properties. The, the interferons themselves are not antiviral. They don't do anything to viruses. They just turn on the synthesis of ISGs. And these are different depending on the kind of interferon and the um, cell type that's making it and so forth. Can lambda cross the tight junction? I don't know the answer, but I'm guessing yes because um, I, I, I'm not sure why. You know, I don't know why the artist put it at the bottom. He could have he he could have put it at the top, and then you wouldn't ask that question, right? It seems circuitous, right? But I'm sure it comes out the bottom as well, and because it it diffuses to sentinel cells, so it must come out both sides. It's relatively big, so I'm not sure it would get through the tight junction. And as I told you, mechanisms of most ISGs are not known. Now, what's really cool, can ISGs exit the cells to trash viral particles not yet in the cell? Yeah, absolutely. 
We'll see some mechanisms, I believe, of it doesn't have to be in the cell. It could be before the cell. What's very cool is that um, the promoters for these uh, innate immune genes, the promoters for um, interferons and ISGs, are actually derived from retroviral LTRs. This is so amazing. So apparently many years ago, a retrovirus infected our lineage. They infected a germ cell, and their LTRs have been uh, exapted. They've been duplicated and moved around. So here's the original endogenous retrovirus. The LTRs have been duplicated and moved elsewhere in the genome, and they're now next to genes uh, that um, basically are ISGs, genes that respond to innate immune signals. And 6 to 14% of our genome uh, is, is run by these LTR-based promoters. Isn't that amazing? We're, we're all a little bit viral. So Nels Eldi, my colleague in, in Utah, uh, has discovered this, and uh, we had talked with him about it on that TWIV, which is a long time ago. But this has happened not just in us, but in other mammals, as you can see here. These have acquired... These are so-called gas motifs. These are motifs in the promoters that are responsive to the effects of interferon, basically the ISG promoters. And uh, all these different animals have promoters for ISGs that are derived from retroviruses. So really amazing. And you wouldn't know this unless you looked for it, of course. So let's talk about some ISGs. Um, interferon-stimulated genes, and of course they encode interferon-stimulating stimulated gene products or proteins. One of them is tetherin, also called CD137. And tetherin is a membrane protein shown here. It has two parts that can interact with uh, the membrane in two different places, right? The N-terminus can go through the membrane, the C-terminus can attach to the membrane. And what these do is they prevent viruses from leaving the cell upon budding. So here we have some tetherins that are holding this retrovirus back, and then there's a whole chain of retroviruses that can't leave the cell because they're all attached to one another by tetherin. So a picture of that is shown here on the right, an electron micrograph. You see lovely chain of retroviruses. They're all held together by tetherin. And so they don't diffuse and they don't infect other cells. They cannot spread in the organism. So this is effectively antiviral, you know, at the very end of the infection before a new one can begin. So this is specific for a number of envelope viruses, including HIV-1. So you may say, why does HIV-1 infect so many people? Because it has a protein called NEF that antagonizes tetherin. Tetherin never gets to where it's supposed to go and the particles are able to butt off and leave. Amazing, isn't it? So this obviously arose over evolutionary time to antagonize uh, tetherin, otherwise the virus wouldn't exist. So that's one example of an interferon-stimulated gene. So again, the gene for tetherin is quiet until interferon's made, and interferon's not made unless a virus is around. Another cool one are the interferon-induced proteins the IFITs, and there are a couple of different ones. This is IFIT1. IFIT stands for interferon-induced protein with tetratricopeptide repeats. 
It's just a kind of protein repeat that's involved in protein-protein interactions. This, um, this protein binds RNAs, capped RNAs lacking 2'O methylation. All right, so what is that? So here's the 5' end of a messenger RNA. There's the cap, right? It's linked to the first base in a weird 5 to 5' prime linkage with three phosphates instead of the usual one. And IFID binds to the cap, and that binding requires um, no methylation at these two positions, right? Lacking 2'0. So cellular mRNAs are methylated typically on these two oxygens. That's the 2' oxygen right there. So IFID doesn't bind cell mRNAs, which is good, right? You don't want to bind your own, because this basically inhibits translation. So IFID binding to the cap prevents the EIF4E4G complex from coming in, which would bring the ribosome in. We talked about that a couple of times ago. And this is how it actually works. This is a three-dimensional structure of IFIT bound to a capped RNA. So here is the structure of IFIT shown as um, in these tube structures. And there in red is, I, is the um, capped mRNA. And it's fitting in a tunnel in the IFIT protein, actually. So, you know, this diagram on the left doesn't at all tell you how it's working. And on the right here is a space-filling view where we've cut away so you can see uh, the cap binding pocket of IFIT and then the, um, the rest of the RNA is binding in there. So this is bound very tightly and it prevents translation. But it will only bind if there's no methyl. The methyls prevent the RNA from binding in here. So that's how cellular RNAs are not inhibited. So how do... Do viruses get around this? You bet they do. Every time I ask you that, if you said yes, the, it would be right. Escape from IFIT-1. So there are a bunch of mechanisms here. And this one is brilliant. Influenza virus, of course, steals the 5' prime cap from host messages, right? It's the primer. <laughs> so this is a cellular cap which has 2' O methyls on it. It looks just like a cellular mRNA to the IFIT, so IFIT doesn't bind it. Influenza virus gets around that. Uh, picornaviruses uh, have no cap. They have a protein, so IFIT doesn't bind it because there's no cap to hold on to. So that's why these are not inhibited by IFITs. Some viral genomes encode methylases that will methylate their 2' O's of their messages including these viruses here. So IFIT's not going to bind them because they look like cellular messages, cellular caps. And some viruses actually methylate their mRNAs by binding host methylases. So they steal the host methylase. These viruses do that. And others have a secondary structure right near the 5' prime cap of the message, which prevents IFIT from binding. So you may ask, does this work on any viruses? Yes, there, there are other viruses that are antagonized by uh, IFIT. But you see there are lots of uh, ways to get around it. And so it doesn't always work. Here's another IFIT, which uh, has been recently figured out. I see the reference down here. I like this one a lot. This is an inhibitor of fusion during virus entry. IFIT M3... Right, so we just talked about M1. This is M3. Here it is in, in a membrane. And look, the N-terminus is here in the 
one side of the membrane. Then it has this helix that kind of sticks in sideways into the membrane. And then another transmembrane part. So this is the, the key right here, this orange part. This is deforming the membrane and preventing it from fusion, fusing. So here's what happens. Remember, uh, viruses that need to fuse with, say, the plasma membrane or within the uh, endosome, they have to have fusion proteins. So those are shown in red here. Remember, the fusion peptide gets inserted into the host membrane. They get pulled close together by the hairpinning, and then the inner leaflets fuse, right? Uh, and then uh, the the outer leaflet has to fuse as well, but that's blocked by um, these, these IFID M3 proteins because they distort the membrane, this little helix here distorts the membrane, it bends it apparently, and that's enough to uh, prevent that last fusion from occurring. So fusion is blocked. It can happen at the cell surface or inside the endosome. So this is something that would be incorporated into the virus uh, as it's being made in the, in the cell, and then it can't infect the next cell. And I don't have any antagonists to tell you about, but there must be. Otherwise, all, all envelope viruses that do fusion would be inhibited. That's pretty cool. So those are just three or four examples of interferon-stimulated gene products. So they're induced by interferon, and they inhibit virus infection. But of course, they're antagonists, so it's always a race between the virus or the cell winning. But what what you need to know is that interferons, you know, interferons sound great. Yeah, let's give everyone interferon. That'll take care of all virus infections. Let's give interferon to people infected with SARS-CoV-2. Well, many viruses encode antagonists, so it doesn't always work. And the interferons themselves are dangerous. The, all these gene products that are induced, over a thousand, they're deleterious because most of our cells have interferon receptors and the, gene, the ISGs can do things. And for example... Fever, chills, nausea, malaise. That often happens when you give people interferons. And every virus infection leads to interferon production. And that's why flu-like symptoms are so common. You know, every virus is not influenza virus. Yet, the very early part of many infections, we get what are called flu-like symptoms because it is fever, chills, nausea, malaise, caused by interferon. It's not the virus. And the next time you get a cold or influenza and you get those those symptoms at the beginning, symptoms, you can feel them. That's interferon being made and doing that. And if you get a vaccine and you get a fever, that's interferon that's doing that. It's good. But it's the reason why you can't just willy-nilly give people interferon. If you do... It's a problem. So for, for many years, we treated hepatitis C virus infection with interferon. And people hated it because you had to have it for many weeks. It made them feel terrible. Many people didn't work because the virus, certain genotypes of hep C got around it. But people felt so badly, they stopped taking it. So now we have better antivirals. But interferon is not the golden bullet for virus infections because... It has to be used in moderation, and that's why it's regulated, because it makes you feel badly, and uh, it can damage you. 
Now we have another question here. How do interferons limit virus replication? A, interferons directly inhibit viral translation. B, interferons lyse viral particles. C, interferons induce ISGs. D, interferons damage cells. E, none of the above. It's not 100%, but you know, I can't have everything. 90% of you interferons induce ISGs. That's what they do. They do not directly inhibit translation. The ISGs can, right? So that's the key point about this question. It's the ISGs that do the inhibition, not the interferons. None of the above, no. <laughs> they induce ISGs. Now, the other, pro the other part of the innate immune system are the sentinel cells. So let's talk about them. Here are the sentinels, dendritic cells, macrophages, and natural killer cells. And you all have these flowing through you. They're all over you. They're in your blood. They're in your tissues, mucosal surfaces, and they're looking for danger. They're looking for signs of change. You'll see in a moment how they do that. This is a dendritic cell. Uh, so called initially because these look like dendrites, which are nerve processes, right? But they're not. It's a different kind of cell. Discovered by Ralph Steinman at Rockefeller. He got a Nobel Prize for this. And the day they picked him, he died, right? And, you know, you're not supposed to give Nobel Prizes to people who have died, but they decided for him because the day they announced that he died, they thought it was okay. He's the only person who got it posthumously. Great guy. And here are NK cells, to uh, yellowy cells attacking a red cell. So they're patrolling and looking for change. And um, how do they do it? So dendritic cells, as, as I said, are, are everywhere, like the sentinels. And there are many kinds of dendritic cells. You don't need to know them. You, they're just everywhere. There are blood dendritic cells of various types. There are tissue dendritic cells. And they patrol. So here are two examples. Here are some dendritic cells. The dendritic cells are with the colors. The red is the virus, right? And here's, a, here's the intestinal epithelium. And they're always, they patrol below it, right, in the subepithelial space. But look at this one. That one has put a, a, den, a dendritic process through the tight junction. It's sampling the, the lumen to see if there's anything foreign out there. That's what they do also. And then... Other epithelia, skin, eye, vagina, and others, they're, they're, they're dendritic cells. Here's one squeezing around through it. They're everywhere, patrolling you all the time. Right now, they're doing it. They're, they're making sure that there's nothing foreign there. And so when they find something, they don't know it's foreign. The dendritic cells have no clue. They're just the messenger. They pick up apatotic bodies. You see in a moment, they can pick up proteins and nucleic acids released from uh, dead cells, and then they will bring it into the lymph node. So here we see these these the pathway to the lymph node, right? So dendritic cells go back, and here they're in the T cell zone, and they are uh, presenting um, to T cells in the T cell zone. And here's a picture of one. There's actually a wonderful B cell immunologist at Rockefeller. I can't remember his name, but he was he was on TWIV, and I remember him because he used to be a concert pianist before he decided to get a PhD and do science. I forgot. God, I can't remember names anymore. He took this picture, and it is a dendritic cell in green, 
in a lymph node, there's the blood vessel, and it's snuggling up to a T cell, which is in blue. Because this dendritic cell has picked up something from the periphery, and um, it has gone into the, the lymph node. It gets activated by a combination of, of cytokines released by the cells and, and picking up proteins. Uh, Steinman never found out he won Nobel Prize. No, he died before he found out. It's too bad. At least they gave it to him, right? Well, they gave it to his family. It's a lot of money, so I guess his family got it. But he has the honor, right? I was at the Nobel Museum in Stockholm in 2019. And so it's a museum of artifacts. Like you said, what artifacts? Well, the Elizabeth Blackburn gave her dress that she bought for the dinner, and it's there in the case. But Ralph Steinman donated, or I guess his family did, donated his tissue culture microscope. He's <laughs> sitting there in the case with a six-well plate on it. It's said, Ralph Steinman's tissue culture microscope. A lot of cool stuff like that. Um, so here, here's the process for these dendritic cells. So we have our virus infecting the epithelial cell barrier. The virus infection is sensed right by the innate system. The cells make inter interferons and other cytokines. The uh, dendritic cells, which are hanging around here, get activated by, they have receptors for these cytokines. They can also pick up apoptotic cell bodies. And the, the uh, dendritic cells, as we'll see in a moment, then get activated. They, they become dendritic-like, right? They have all the processes. And they're now displaying antigens on their surfaces, and they go into the lymph node, and they're going to show this to a T cell, and the T cell will decide whether it's foreign or not. It's going to interact with a T cell receptor and so forth. So the dendritic cell is just a, a messenger, right? And then if this is foreign, then the adaptive immune system is going to be activated. So the innate system is really important. It's a link between early infection in, in antibodies and T-cells. This, this we'll talk about next time, of course. But the, again, the point here is that these sentinels are activated by cytokines and also by viral proteins and nucleic acids released from infected cells because they have all the right receptors. They have TLRs, they have cytoplasmic helicases, and so forth, as you'll see here. So here's what happens to the dendritic cells. Here we have an immature dendritic cell. This is the form that they're patrolling. They don't have the dendrites when they're patrolling and not activated. And so it can pick up uh, apoptotic bodies, right, which contain protein nucleic acid from, from virus-infected cell, or, or not a virus-infected cell. If this is just cellular debris, uh, it'll bring it back into the lymph node, and the, and the T cell will say, go away. You don't waste my time. This is, this is us. And that's fine. But the, the cells are constantly patrolling and doing this, right? It doesn't get turned on by virus infection. Um, but the cytokines produced by virus-infected cells will activate these dendritic cells that will recruit more into the area, will activate them. The cells have toll-like receptors. They have uh, cytoplasmic receptors. Uh, and uh, they can also make interferon. So at the site of infection, they can make some interferon before they go off and help maybe inhibit the infection. And these cells process uh, the proteins that are taken in and they make peptides out of them. We'll talk about that next time. And the peptides are these orange boxes. They're loaded onto MHC class II molecules in the endosome. And then as the dendritic cell matures, uh, the MHC is put on the surface and it makes these processes and it goes in the lymph node where it's going to 
interact with T cells. So here's a naive T cell in the lymph node, and there's the T cell receptor, which is going to bind to the peptide in the context of MHC2. There are other receptor interactions here involved. As you can see here, the, um, the T cell will decide if this is foreign or not. Depends on whether it fits into the T cell receptor. Because if it's self, it's not going to bind to the T cell receptor. All the self-reactive T cell receptor should have been eliminated during fetal development. Um, and then this DC is also making cytokines of various sorts, which then will activate and help mature the T cell to become an activated T cell. And then it goes on and, and does the uh, adaptive immune response. So that's what happens if this is a foreign peptide, the T cell is activated, we proceed to adaptive immunity. If it's self, the T cell does not get activated and the, the DC goes back and, and does another job. But these are constantly doing this, bringing materials in. And of course, if there's a virus infection, there are more DCs that are picking up materials and bringing them into the lymph node. So that's the key here. This is the link between the innate and the adaptive response. There are also NK cells, natural killer cells, as part of the innate immune response. And here, the, these NK cells have two receptors on their surface, an activating and an inhibitory receptor. And um, the, the inhibitory receptor is typically bound by an MHC molecule, and that prevents the uh, NK cell from killing this cell. So there's no, there's no antigen specificity here. But what happens is in many virus-infected cells, uh, MHC molecules are down-regulated because, as we'll see next time, MHC is a way that cytotoxic T cells will recognize an infected cell and kill it. So many antagonists, viral antagonists, downregulate MHC, but the NK cells can sense that. They say, oh, there's no MHC, let's kill it. So the activating receptor is engaged and this cell is lysed. But in a normal cell, sometimes actually viruses uh, upregulate MHC mimics to keep NK cells from killing them. So if both receptors are engaged, the cell is not killed. Yeah, there, there are plenty of modulators of this as well. And finally, the last uh, aspect of the uh, innate response is complement, which is a collection of many different proteins in the blood. Uh, and these react to foreign invaders, viruses, and bacteria in different ways. And there are three different kinds of pathways here, for example. And all these boxes with the numbers, uh, those are the different proteins. And so, for example, if an antibody is bound to a virus particle or a bacterium, uh, one of the complement proteins, C1, can recognize the FC portion, and that'll trigger a series of activations of complement proteins. These are proteases, these convertases, and they can make proteins that cause inflammation, re re uh, cause um, the production of cytokines by cells. These will bind cells and, and cause cytokine production. Uh, some of the products made will assemble protein components that lice, say, infected cells to kill them. Uh, and some of these proteins will coat bacteria and viruses and cause them to be better phagocytosed by, say, macrophages. That's called opsonization. And so these cleavage products that are active in inflammation, membrane lysis, opsonization, those can be produced upon... Uh, C1 binding antibody. They can be produced by proteins which recognize carbohydrate patterns on microbes uh, and so forth. 
So complement is an important part. And in fact, we have uh, in our blood antibodies to uh, that will recognize viruses before our own antibody response is made. And some of those can lice uh, either infected cells or envelope viruses by these pathways. And yes, there are viral modulators at every step of this. So basically what I've told you is that when you get infected, you get inflammation. If you go online and search for inflammation, they have these these diagrams like this, which say, yeah, all these diseases involve inflammation, cancer, diabetes, neurological diseases, et cetera. Yeah, anything that damages you. If you exercise really hard, you can get inflammation because you, you get tissue damage. What's missing? They don't even put infection in here. That's a big cause of inflammation. It's not even in this chart. Infected cells, any damaged cell produces cytokines that, and chemokines that will cause inflammation but a virus-infected cell will make these, and they cause the four classic signs of inflammation, which are redness, pain, heat, and swelling. This was recognized a long time ago, first century, by Celsus. He called it rubor, dolor, calor, and tumor. Uh, that's uh, redness, pain, heat, and swelling. That's what those words mean. And that comes from increased blood flow, increased capillary permeability, influx of phagocytic cells and tissue damage. That causes these four signs of inflammation. And these are all caused by cytokines and chemokines being produced in response to the innate sensing of infection. There are three different kinds of cytokines. They're pro-inflammatory, famous ones like IL-1 and 6, TNF. They promote activation of, of uh, white blood cells but you can't have them on forever, so you have to have anti-inflammatory uh, cytokines that suppress pro-inflammatory cytokines. So those are the two kinds of cytokines we make. And then there are chemokines that attract immune cells, chemotaxis. So here we have an infected part of the body. The infected cells are making chemokines that attract cells, immune cells out of the blood and I'll show you how this works in a moment. And then the, chemo the cytokines can activate them. So you have capillary permeability. You have an influx of cells. You have fluids coming in. And this area has got the four signs of inflammation, the swelling, the redness, the heat, the pain, which you may or may not feel depending on where this is happening. So these are soluble proteins. This, the chemokines and cytokines are initially made you know, to deal with a local infection, but they're soluble. They get in the blood and they go many other places. As you can see, they can get in your brain. They go into your bone marrow to help produce more immune cells. They can go to your liver, but they have global effects, sleepiness, lethargy, muscle pain, loss of appetite, nausea. And that's why often a localized infection can produce global effects. You can have nausea when you have influenza. It's not because the virus is reproducing in your gut. It's because the cytokines are doing that. Same thing with SARS-CoV-2. And there we have a massive overproduction of cytokines and chemokines in certain people. We don't know why. And that gives you lots of other symptoms as a consequence. So a localized infection can produce global effects. It doesn't mean the virus is everywhere. These cytokines have receptors on their cell surfaces. When the cytokine binds, it triggers a phosphorylation cascade, and genes are transcribed. And the products 
determine the biological response. You know, depending on what cell these gene products get into, they're going to have their effects. So here's an example where we have uh, some immune cell in a blood vessel, and this is in an area that's been infected. There are now chemokines and cytokines being produced, and one of the effects is to attract these blood, these immune cells, and have them go through the blood vessel into the area that's infected. This this process we talked about briefly last time, these cells can squeeze through here. And this process is stimulated by chemokines and cytokines. Here's a, a blow-up of it on the bottom here. So you can see this is a neutrophil, which you know is initially flowing through the blood, but in an area of in infection and inflammation, uh, certain chemokines are present. Here's one CXCL8. It will bind a receptor on the neutrophil. That will then induce the synthesis of a, a, an integrin, which will bind receptors on the endothelial cells, and that gets the neutrophil to attach to them, start rolling, and uh, squeeze through. So that's that's in part what these uh, chemokines can do. And so that's part of inflammation. You have an influx of cells. This permeabilizes other chemokines. Other cytokines can permeabilize uh, the endothelium and cause fluid to leak out, and that's part of the issue. And yes, viruses do encode countermeasures. Uh, some viral gene products actually block the, the production of cytokines and chemokines or their maturation. Some of them have to be cleaved by proteases to mature. Some viral proteins interfere with cytokine action. Some genes of viruses, in fact, encode homologs of the cytokines themselves, right? They look like a cytokine. They bind the cytokine receptor, but they don't do anything. So they block up all the receptors and block cytokine action. Some virus genomes encode soluble cytokine receptors. So they sop up all the cytokines and they don't work. It's just uh, amazing. And then certainly there are viral proteins that interfere with cytokine signaling pathways, which I just mentioned to you briefly. So inflammation is good, actually, uh, because it's the way that the innate and adaptive responses are linked by this cytokine chemokine production. And cytopathic viruses uh, give you a good immune response typically because they cause cell damage, right? Cytopathic, they kill the cell. The cell gets damaged. The sentinels pick up the damaged cell parts and they bring it to the lymph node and activate the, the adaptive response. So this is why cytopathic genomes have to modulate this, uh, this inflama inflammatory response. Otherwise, they get cleared, and these include adenoviruses, herpes viruses, uh, and pox viruses. They have antagonists of many aspects of the innate response. On the other hand, there are some viruses that do not kill cells, non-cytopathic viruses. The cells don't get damaged. There's no inflammation or very low inflammation because there's nothing to sample. So the innate response is low. And consequently, the adaptive response is very low as well. And these have very different interactions with the immune system. They typically cause persistent infections. They remain for your lifetime. They're not effectively cleared because they don't stimulate good inf inflammation. And that's why we add adjuvants to some vaccines so that they stimulate good inflammation and you get a good immune response. Because if you don't, the adaptive response is poor. So this is the lesson. This inflammatory response, heat, swelling, redness, and pain, is an, is an illustration of the communication of the innate 
and adaptive defenses. The infected cells sense infection. They produce cytokines and chemokines that get the sentinels going into the lymph node where the adaptive response is activated. So the inflammation is a sign that that's working. No inflammatory response. You get very poor adaptive responses. That's why a pure protein vaccine is not very good unless you add an adjuvant, which stimulates inflammation. And as I said, some of the adjuvants are actually TLR ligands. Just to remind you that not all inflammation is actually caused by infection. I showed you a slide of that earlier. Many diseases are associated with inflammation, exercise. But there's one vaccine that we give, the smallpox vaccine, which is given as a drop of virus in this needle. It's a bifurcated needle. You then scrape the skin and you break the epidermis. That causes inflammation. You get cytokine and chemokine production as a consequence of the injury, not of the virus. You recruit immune cells, and then the virus induces a great adaptive response as a consequence. If, if you inject the vaccine instead of scarify in this way, you get far less adaptive responses. It's really remarkable. And, you know, this started with Jenner. He decided to do this. He decided to scrape this into the skin of the milkmaids. I don't know why he decided to do that. Maybe he thought, you know, it's a pustule. Maybe I should stay there where the, where the virus causes the, uh, the lesions. But the scraping itself causes it. This is a great example of how inflammation is really important for a good immune response. And if the virus doesn't do it, you have to either add an adjuvant or, in this case, you scrape the skin. And, of course, everything I've told you today, intrinsic, innate responses, there are antagonists. All viruses have to encode at least one regulator of these defenses. All of these things, sensing, interferon production, signaling, cytokines, chemokines, NK cells, DCs, and complement. There have to be. Otherwise, the virus is eliminated because these defenses are really good. Next time, we are going to talk about the adaptive response. So, so far, we have talked about how infection is sensed, how it leads to innate responses in the forms of cytokines. We're going to talk about uh, how the mature dendritic cells that result as this as a consequence of this early inflammation go into the lymph node, stimulate the production of antibodies and cytotoxic T lymphocytes, and exactly what they do uh, to prevent infection. So when you come back from your restful spring break, we'll talk about adaptive immunity, 